Alrighty, guys. So we kind of discussed the drill here. The, the whole point is for you guys to grill me with whatever critiques or challenges that you have, knowing what you do know about what I do, what N1 does or whatever. So without further ado, come at me, bros. <laughs> All right. I mean, so depending on where this is going to be hosted, I guess maybe we should have some intro of who we are. So I don't, Brian, you want to go first? Uh, yeah, I'm Brian Borstein. I uh, own a couple like online group training programs, um, mostly like physique hypertrophy focused stuff. I got uh, 25 years of training uh, and uh, I've been mostly uh, in this, whatever you call evidence-based space uh, for about six years now and uh, been kind of associated with CASM in some way for close to a year now. And, uh, I am really excited for this opportunity to be able to, uh, pick Kasim's brain and, uh, try to poke some holes in all the great stuff they do. Awesome. Yeah, be fun. So I am Dave McConey, host of brains Against podcast, uh, Instagram, same name, Dave underscore McConey there. And, uh, yeah, I've been doing the podcast for a few years, been lifting for 18 years. I didn't know you were 25 years in though, Brian. I, I thought we were about Almost the same 20, time, but wow. Yeah, yeah. 1997. So Wow, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, 18, still still a long time. And uh, just super enthusiastic about all this stuff. Love dissecting into the science and all that. So also looking forward to doing this. Awesome. And hopefully you guys know who I am. Um, <laughs> I'm Coach, I go as Coach Kasim on Instagram. Um, but uh, I have been in this space pretty much just as long as Brian, but I've been teaching um, for about 15 years now um, and researching about a decade. So my whole goal at this point in my career is, is just see how much better I can leave the industry before I get out of it. So hopefully, hopefully we're making a dent. Awesome. So I guess today we're just uh, we're trying to pick apart some things, right? I like the concept, come at me, bro. So uh, I know Brian, I don't know when Abel's jumping on here and obviously we can cut whatever out, but, uh, all right. Abel just said he's coming soon. So, <laughs> so he'll be on eventually. Um, so Brian, do you want to start with any of your points? Well, I think maybe we just start with the discussion around the recent test that, uh, that Cass yeah. did the pre-exhaust test. So, uh, Cass, if you want to introduce it and then we can kind of take it from there. Yeah. So essentially, so we call it a performance loss test, even like the protocol that we're using, it looks like a, like a pre-exhaust superset, but what we're actually looking at is performance loss between two exercises. And the basic premise is that the more similar two exercises are in terms of their muscular recruitment, the more performance loss you would get pre-exhausting with, you know, an exercise that was very similar versus an exercise that was quite different. Right. Um, and this is just, another layer that we can add on top of all of the other data that we can look at from biomechanics to EMG to muscle oxygen and stuff like that is it's like, all right, well, can this then give us something in the field? The other thing is that, you know, this kind of lets people kind of see not only just where the theory lines up, you know, in terms of we do research, but it is something that pretty much anybody can do. And so their own individual structure and technique and stuff is actually going to come in to play, right? So, so the, their, their unique variable is something that they're able to, to work out. Um, and then that can open up questions in, in either directions, whether they get results that line up with what we would consider good controls versus very different, you know, than the controls. Like, um, 
and we'll get into this probably. I I have videos of Brian's uh, set. I don't I don't know if he filmed anything, um, but technique is going to be a is going to be a big factor in the outcomes for these. So yeah, that's what it is. Performance loss. Yeah, I'm very curious to see because I I feel like. And, you know, obviously the, the point of all this is like, okay, can we be skeptical about some of this stuff? So I'm just wondering how, like how you'll view it in terms of, you know, one's technique affecting it. Because one of the things we talked about was that, honestly, it feels like almost any semi-related exercise would cause some performance loss. So for people who had, and maybe we can put in the clips here, but you had Instagram demonstrations of you doing, there was one that was like a straight arm kind of like side pull down going into a more lat focused movement. And then there was that lat pull in. And when you had the straight arm one, my first thought was like, okay, I feel like that would pre fatigue a little bit. Uh, but when you had the lat pull in that actually has elbow flexion, it was kind of like, how could that not cause a decrease in performance given that there's elbow flexion in both movements? Um, but even as we were talking in our group, you know, even something that maybe doesn't completely work that muscle just from a, uh, systemic fatigue, seems like you would lose something. Um, you know, I imagine if I, if I went from like an all out squat <laughs> to a bench, you know, and I, I know it's a little bit different, but I'm just saying there would be some systemic fatigue. So, uh, that was just what I think all of our initial surprise there. Honestly, I was surprised myself. Like I totally went into that thinking that I would lose two, three, three reps. Um, mm -hmm. I, th I thought on both, that would be, it would be a difference. And what was interesting is that perceptively, I feel like the, the one that was pre-exhausted was harder, but I was somehow still able to get about the same reps. Um, and I think that's where like the threshold kind of matters like in terms of like well there's elbow flexion but are you fatiguing elbow flexion in a way that it would show up in the loading and rep range of that second exercise so another way that we do this is we do it with the we actually do it with the force gauge right where we can basically just measure a maximal like isometric contraction and then do it and then you know measure another contraction afterwards and that's more sensitive to the differences, right? Because say I'd lost, you know, like maybe like 5% of force production or something like that. If I'm jumping into a 10 rep max load, I might be able to kind of just kind of recuperate that with the way that my body's able to like reestablish some homeostasis just between the transition of the exercise and actually over those 10 reps that I can kind of absorb that 5% loss and still get 10 reps, but maybe they're just like so perceptively like, or just they were slower, but like almost not perceivably slower, if you will. Um, so yeah, I did think that was interesting um, because it, mine, I think, turned out way more biased than I expected it to in terms of like not losing any reps on there. But Brian and I were talking about the elbow flexion thing, and the elbow flexors, if you if you if you don't engage them, you can you can do this and have them almost do nothing, and we've been able to measure that. Right. And I'm, that's just a skill that I've developed over like doing this type of training. Hey, there's able, um, for a very, very long time is that when I pull, I can just pull with shoulder extension and I can get almost like no measurable EMG on the elbow flexors. Like it's just, it's like, it's like the equivalent of me, like curling, like a, you know, a five pound dumbbell, right. When I'm doing that, it's like just enough to stabilize the elbow. 
Um, but if you are used to having a little bit more of that pulling intent, then you would naturally see a little bit more of that crossover. Um, and one of the things that you'll tend to see, and you can kind of see this on Brian's, this is that the more elbow flexion compensation you'll have is you'll actually start to see that that elbow flexion close a little bit more in the reps as you're using a little bit more. Like, so you'll see like from the beginning to the end, mm -hmm. you're using just a little bit more elbow flexion. So depending on how you do your pre-exhaust, if you actually push to where you're using a little bit more elbow flexion, then you would expect it to carry over. But if you're using very, very little, then maybe you wouldn't expect it to carry over, right? So. Abel, we're, uh, we're just finishing up. If you want to put any closing thoughts in here, just kidding. <laughs> I, I, I disagree with everything that was said. Just kidding. TLDL. We were just uh, talking about the, the, um, the fatigue yeah. loss ones. The, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I put that together, but conclusion, did we do it wrong? And that's why that's why we found what we, we <laughs> so got or we were actually just starting the conversation. Yeah, yeah. yeah this is right. this is literally the beginning. I was actually you you so you really did match, like you got the same amount of reps fresh as you did in the second test, yeah? Or in the post exhaust one. I think on I lost like I think I lost one rep on the yeah. uh, like if you're if you're nitpicky about the range of motion, I think I lost yeah. a rep on the uh the pull in like the with elbow flexion version. Right. Um, okay. so, so, so it's like, I got the same amount of reps, but I mean, you, I mean, it's a short and based exercise. So you're, what you're looking for is you're looking for that slight loss in the short position, right? Cause yeah. it's like, well, you might be able to get two more reps if you don't notice that you lost 5% of range and then 10% of range yeah. or whatnot. Right. So I would say in both of them, I did lose just a little bit, but I didn't lose like a whole rep. In yeah. yeah. I was kind of thinking that like, a successful result in this test would be kind of what I did. Like I lost mm -hmm. three reps basically. And I kind of looked at it as ranges as like, if you lose three or less reps, then, Hey, that's probably a pretty good indication that there isn't a lot of uh, crossover uh, performance loss. And then maybe something between like four and six or whatever is like a moderate amount. And then, you know, if you get like two or three reps of an eight rep set, then, you're, you're kind of outside of the spectrum and there, there's significant performance loss. And then you can go down the rabbit hole of how much uh, technique and stuff affects that. But that was kind of the grade and the way that I was looking at it going into it. Um, so I thought mine is successful performance. Yours, obviously uh, more successful. And then uh, I'd love to hear kind of the way it went with Dave and Abel too. Yeah. yeah before so they tell me their numbers, just cause mm -hmm. I, so, so I can't skew it here is yeah. we, we're generally looking at a positive outcome being less than 50% of your baseline reps, right? So if you got 10 before, then we would expect a good test. You would have gotten no more than four, if that makes sense, right? Like the, the fewer, the better. And what like really good stuff that's like very similar um, and like even the same division, it's usually going to be like one to two, but stuff that's like, all right, you know, either maybe it's a big resistance profile shift or a slightly different division of the muscle. Then we're getting into like that three to five ish rep range, but pretty much at five and up, we're like, okay, these two are now we'll say we consider them to be very different in terms of what their goals should be. If, if that makes sense. It's good context. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, cool. What'd you guys do? So, and also just, I mean, again, for people, I, I think once we put the, uh, if people haven't seen your Instagram shorts there, like, I think that'll be very helpful for people. But if some people listening could imagine, like if you went from a barbell curl to failure, 
and then to like a dumbbell crawl right afterwards. Like effectively, you should get zero reps more or less, right? I mean, you shouldn't be able to, if it was something that was moderately hard, you should basically not be able to do it anymore. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so I would ask, because we've gotten a lot of conversation about the different, um, like I guess like where you're hitting the lats. So if you were to take, I think Brian and Abel, I sent you guys the video of me doing that chest supported kind of like a low row, right? Um, would you say like, how effective would you say Kassim that is for targeting the lats? And I know you have like the different fibers, but. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing that would, if the angle that you pull at is going to like, like if we're looking sagely and my arms coming up from, you know, high to low, like all of that can be lat and it's just going to move around which part of the lat, depending on the angle, as long as you're taking like an arm path, that's relatively tight to the rib cage right? And you're approximating that origin. So, so all of that is lat-ish, but the, the further divergent you would do two angles. So if you did like a very, like if you did a very vertical thing and then you mm. compared it to a very, um, you know, horizontal or even, you know, slight decline thing, you might see less crossover because while they're both the lat, you're kind of, you're biasing one division over, over the other a little bit, just like, you know, if you did, you know, dips and like a incline press back to back, you would get less crossover than if you did flat barbell and flat dumbbell press. Right. And that's what I would assume. But I, so I did basically, you know, as much as I could try to mimic what you did with, but a straight arm. So I was kind of coming in like this and I did that to failure with about, I have to go back and look, it was like 15 to 18 reps um, as much as I, I could genuinely do. And then I went to that low row and um, I normally would get 12 and I got six. So even with a significantly different angle, I was cut to about half. And I mean, it wasn't, you know, but like kind of like what Abel mentioned, like the second I picked it up, I was like, this is not going to be close. Um, and I understand there's like a psychological component to like how hard something feels and maybe that affected me, but I did try to go as hard as I could and I cut it in half. I would say if you're doing a low row, then you're working more of the upper divisions of the lats, which probably would have more uh carryover from the straight arm pull down i would think it was, than it was the... because yeah because that because the because of the way that's levered it's actually pretty hard at the bottom when your arm is close to your body which is the same thing as doing more of a horizontal roll than a, than a pull down so it actually the version that you did carries over a lot so when i was speaking originally about the angle i was mm. assuming a pull not a straight arm not a pull over but a, but a pull down for so a pull over is 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 different because like because instead of bringing the arm into the body, you're using the arm and you're going through like this big arc, mm-hmm. right? So depending on like when you did it, was the cable set up so that like when you were at the bottom, that it was still fairly challenging, like the cable was close to perpendicular or perpendicular-ish to the to the arm, or is it more perpendicular towards the top? Uh, I would say I try to stand where it was pretty even between the two. Yeah, pretty um, like in between kind of, the two. Yeah. Yeah. So if you did that, I would, I bet it was much more challenging in the short, the bottom position, which would yeah. be closer to the low row type of a mm-hmm. uh, force in there. Right. The other thing is, is that what I found is once you get north of 10 to 12 reps, the, my ability to kind of gauge the accuracy of these things starts to like, I feel like there's a lot because you can compensate a lot more at a higher rep range because it's a relative load range. And so my confidence in the test drops precipitously. I think that's the right word. Uh, once you get above 
12 reps on there. So if you did 15 on there, right? Like it's, I would still say like, okay, if you got half, I'd be like, yeah, all right. Like there's some overlap, but like, I wouldn't consider the, them like completely great alternatives, you know, Here's, like so, I wouldn't uh, consider specifically on the pre-fatigue exercise you're talking about. Yeah. Cause you said that it was 12, the first, it was 12 is what you'd normally get and you got six. Right. right? Yeah. So that's like, yeah. that's at that threshold where I'm like, mm. and then the fact that you did a little, you did higher reps, I would say, well, the more reps you do, the more fatigue I would just expect to come along with it just because you can compensate more. So if anything, I'd like to err on, you know, for sure under 12, but like if I can mm. hit that eight to 10 range, that seems to be the sweet spot. Cause if you go too heavy, then you start, you know, maybe depending on certain exercises, there's, you know, some, you know, like whole body systemic fatigue, that's more so going to come over stability and stuff like that. So, I mean, kind of depends on exercise selection, whatever. but I, that, that does not surprise me at all. The outcome that you got there. Right. Abel. Um, so I, I did it similarly to Dave with the setup. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, when I had Doug uh, on my podcast, then I actually asked this of him, like, why doesn't he do the pull in like that? Um, because it just made more sense to me. So that's how I did it, which I'll show you now. So basically, if you think of the lap prayer, how that's done, it's mm -hmm. basically I did it like that, but just to the side. So mm -hmm. I, it's like pretty much completely to the side, like just just in here enough so that I don't get like some weird impingement and I would lean towards the stack when my arm is here and then I would kind of lean back at the bottom and it's still short position uh like dominance so you would you will still fail uh the rep at that point but you get a pretty good stretch of whatever thing this is <laughs> and um yeah I would uh I don't know if this matters, but I'll just mention it. I always like focus on like pulling this, like, like, like this, like mm -hmm. wing, like pulling it in. Mm -hmm. um, and so I went to, uh, I think, yeah, I think I failed the last rep, uh, but at the very least it was like a serious grinder, zero reps in reserve thing. And then I went to um, a chest supported uh, like iliac pull down thing, or I attempted at least to do it to the best of my abilities. Um, so I just put down the bench uh, against the stack. I actually pushed myself away with a foam roller, which is a cool tip for anybody who wants to try it out. And the stack is too close. So you would bang into the, the like the weight stack would bang into, or the weights would bang into each other. And um, yeah, I'm just going for like not bringing the shoulder like too high up. So I'm like going for like as far forward as I can, really feeling this kind of moving forward and stretching out. And then like, sort of like down here, uh, not letting the elbows pass the, my, my torso basically. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah. And so I got eight reps with my left arm with my right arm. I'm usually a rep weaker. Like that's pretty consistent for me. Uh, I'm left-handed, so it makes sense. And I got so basically it was like two reps and, but like, so as, as soon as I got, I, I grabbed the handle, I could feel like, man, like, you know, if you can do eight reps, then the first couple are easy, like four mm -hmm. or five, then they start, you start feeling something. I felt that immediately was like, okay, like I'm grabbing something heavy here. It just feels mm -hmm. different. And two reps, the second one was already like pretty grindy. Mm -hmm. Third one, I failed midway through. Mm -hmm. So 
yeah, to me, it was a substantial, uh, substantial drop. So for you, the way you were doing it, I would consider that a positive test in terms of overlap, right? To go from mm-hmm. eight and, you know, even with the, the, we would assume maybe one less rep, right? So we could say like, you yeah. know, three would have been the threshold, but you said, you know, the second rep was there. Um, so, so, so of the three of you guys, you had the most overlap with the mm-hmm. two exercises, right? Um, yeah. Dave, you're kind of a half and Brian, yours was a pretty, a pretty positive, uh, or I should say it was a, it was a, it was a negative in terms of the overlap. Right. So, um, but you know, it a lot. It was it was similar to the result. So you two got pretty much what I would kind of expect, um, especially given the variables. And actually, able to that like doesn't surprise me at all. It's like especially because if you are so, so this is this is the interesting thing, especially working with bodybuilders. Like um, I I mean, Abel, I don't know if you work with any if you work with any pros or whatnot. But I mean, so the mind muscle connection thing is really interesting because. You can, you can pose a muscle in an exercise when that muscle really isn't being demanded to, it's for the, to overcome the resistance, but you can still engage it and you can still fatigue it with that intent. Now, the benefit of that, it's obviously better than not using that muscle at all, but it's not as good as if it was also like really active against the resistance, right? So mm-hmm. if you are applying a lot of like mind-muscle connection intent into that, then I mean, I could, I could fatigue my lats picking my nose. If I put, if I pose my lats and I'm just sitting in here and like, I could, I would, I would, I would lose reps by just consciously. So that's why, like, when I put the first one out, the key instructions were just like, you have to do these with no intent other than to move the object from point A to B. You got to kind of be like, you got to embrace like your inner power lifter or athlete, uh, if you will. So that you remove that variable, because what we want to see is what the exercise does, not what we're able to do within the exercise for neutral. But now one thing you could do if you like, if you say, say, for instance, you're using the best exercise that you have available, you could test yourself with and without applying that conscious intent. Right. And see if that actually makes a difference, like see how much you can. You know, one, you could see if it changes your performance, if you're like doing unilateral stuff It's like, hey, if I just like say you're doing a dumbbell row and in one, you just you just pull the dumbbell up with a, you know, a controlled arm path. And the other one, you do the same arm path, but with a little bit more conscious intent of trying to squeeze the lat, you can one, look at your performance. And then two, you could look at how much performance loss you would get in another exercise that you think is works well for your for your lats. Right. Um, So, um, yeah, it's it's. To, to that, um, I, I think we should mention what, because we've been sending some voice notes back and forth after we did the experiment. And what I was saying is that I personally, when I saw your video, I, my first thought was that I'm surprised by even the assumption that there wouldn't be some overlap. Now with this qualifier that you would look for a, like a 50% drop or more, then it, it, it makes more sense. But like, to because to me, it was like an exercise doesn't have to be that great for a muscle group to limit the performance of another exercise, which is good. So like, um, I would even expect a, a significant drop or at least, uh, maybe not 50%. So like, yeah, with that qualifier, the bar is higher, but I would definitely expect a, a, a considerable drop in my performance on that iliac pull down 
if I did some like high rows for the rear delts or something. Because mm. like inevitably, I mean, not because of the last, but like the rear delts will inevitably be somewhat involved on that iliac pull down as well, right? So it's mm. it's not a high bar to hit in my mind. Yeah, I and we actually were talking. This is the first thing that we were discussing. Is I was actually surprised at how much, how little overlap there was uh, when I did it. And what I want, I actually want to go through and do it with a higher load, higher load, lower rep baseline test, just to see if, for my relative strength level, if ten reps may be too high for that exercise. Like Brian's trained with me, I like I'm really fucking good at using these lat movements now, right? Like they're just like. Like normally, like if I'm training, I'm going to do that whole stack, you know, for, for six reps for, you know, a couple sets, et cetera. So I was doing this at the end of my training, like after my training session, I would like, I would, I would have my yogurt and walk around or whatever, play with the dog for like 10, 15 minutes. And then I would come back and then I would do this, um, these experiments at the end. So there is the variable in that. I was when you say the, the end, end you mean at the end, like where you'd already worked your lats for a whole workout and everything. Yeah. So I had trained and then I took time off and then I came. So it could be that having that little residual fatigue, um, you know, that, that, that was, that was, I mean, I would still think that like, if in, in that acute scenario that you would still get the performance loss, right. Whether you, cause I mean, both, both sides are coming in pre fatigue. Um, so, but that still could be, cause it could affect like, it, like if my if my loading tolerance was a little bit lower right compared to my relative strength then it could be it's like well it's maybe capacity is more of a limiter than the like the strength loss that i would be getting between those two which would have maybe buffered that out so i do want to try that after i do um i got i need to do another motion um that paul uh lifrom bang wants me to do which is like straight frontal plane uh, like, or as frontal plane as a human can, can get, you know, and be not like wrenching their arm out of rotation. Um, and just try that like by itself. Um, I would, I would think, I mean, one, I, I think it is a significant factor because like I, when I did my experiment, it was the first exercise I did. Mm -hmm. And I think we can all kind of relate if you're totally fresh, like, even if you're doing four sets of the same exercise, just, you know, in a, in a regular workout, mm -hmm. For me, at least that first to second one, if that first one was near failure, huge drop off. And then after that, you're kind of just generally fatigued, and, but they don't drop as much after that. So I would expect, and now, like you said, I would still expect some loss, but that could explain maybe some of it. Um, I would kind of question though the assumption that just because you focused on it, obviously, you know, you're, you're kind of being hyperbolic with the, the nose picking example, but just to say like, Hey, if I'm focusing on the lats, I'm going to lose reps. Like, cause there's some uh, evidence to show that by not doing it uh, very intensely, but just having a focus on a muscle before a set could increase performance. You know, if you're like thinking about it and focusing on it and, and then you can increase performance afterwards. So I would just wonder if, if it's really not working that much, the lats, how did I lose half or how did able to lose, you know, three quarters of reps or whatever it was? Well, one to step back, it, it, it the thinking about the muscle is different than like consciously engaging the muscle when they're yeah. looking at that performance test. Right. So when I was doing like, when I'm thinking about, I'm not like picking my nose and thinking about my lats. I'm like, my lat is it's contracting. You can't see it's not in the video, but I'm like, I'm consciously squeezing my lat against no resistance. Right. And it could do that. Like in any, in any position, I could just squeeze my lat on demand. Right. Just like if you 
you know, just like you could pose anything, right? Like if I'm sitting here, I could just squeeze my pecs and just hold them tight. And if I just sit here and I talk to you guys for 30 seconds while I'm holding this pec isometric, and then I went and press, it would be a performance drop, not a performance increase. That's different than like me visualizing the motion and thinking about like the way all of this feels and then getting in there and doing the motion, if that makes sure. sense, right? Yeah. So just yeah. so those two things aren't completed. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree because... I don't think that you can say that the that a pull in is zero lats by by any means, right? And I would never I would never say that. Um, you know, uh, the question is is and this is this is what you have to look at is does the pull in is it lat dependent enough that the lat how how much of a limiter is the lat right? How how much stimulus how much fatigue are you getting in that compared to the other things like what what is going to make you and that exercise is kind of, is kind of what we're really kind of seeing here. Um, and so there's also going to be differences in individuals in terms of development and the strength ratios between their other shoulder extensors and the lats and stuff like that. That'll kind of give some buffering in there. So say you had like just massively strong Terry's and not as strong lats, right? You might see a greater performance loss doing something that was a little bit more Terry's um, and then say the other way around, say you had like really weird, really weak Terry's and rear delts, but super strong lats, right? Then you might see less of a performance loss because whatever is the weakest link in the chain in the first exercise, if you stop when that thing gets fatigued, right? And you're not doing a ton of reps or breaking your technique so that you can compensate with other things, right? Whatever that weakest link is, if it's not the main thing that's in the next, right? Then you won't get as much of a performance loss, right? But if it's really close to, or it is the thing that's in the next thing, then you'll get, then you'll get a ton, right? And that's why, I mean, there's going to be variation um, across these, but that's why I said the threshold is probably under 50%, right? So three out of four, Abel, you, you screwed it up. <laughs> um, Cass, if you had somebody performing a pull-in in like the most lat dominant manner that you could, and then you had someone performing the same person performing an iliac pull down in like the most butchered manner where it was like the most upper back dominant thing. Like could the pull in in that scenario be a better lat exercise or is it always going to be like, it's gotta be in the sagittal plane, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I mean, that kind of depends on where you draw the line on when the exercise is so bad that it's no longer the yeah, muscle group. The, yeah. yeah. I'm just thinking right? like somebody could, you know. if this is the case though, like if, if, if Abel did this like straight arm pulling thing mm -hmm. and then he, he made it so lat dominant that it actually was like deemed a good pre-exhaust movement for a pull down mm -hmm. to like further target the lats, then maybe somebody's doing the pull down, you know, inappropriately. And maybe they're doing the pull in kind of similarly to the way Abel is. And suddenly like just due to that small nuance, it's a better movement in theory. Yeah. I mean, technique on both exercises is, is going to be a variable. And so the most we can say is, is that per, for the technique and the amount of effort that you put into it, right? This was the amount of overlap for you as an individual, right? Now I can say, these are the standards that I'm going to qualify for these exercises and the rep range. And I can use that so that I can make you know, some judgments or some form some opinions about 
the exercises from an education standpoint and a, and a practical standpoint. Um, but, you know, anybody that all, all of their individual variances then are going to are going to come into play with this. Right. So if their technique is the same on one, but different on the other, it'll be different. Right. Uh, you could have people that have techniques moving in basically opposite directions and then somehow get the same result. Right. But real, but it's just because, you know, you know, maybe they were, they were doing a little bit more lats in the, in the, um, whatchamacallit, in the pull-in and a little bit more tarries in the other motion, right. you know, just be, because of their technique, you know, so right. how's, you know, so in that case, they might like make it seem like it overlaps a ton because they're just kind of using everything in both. Right. Um, and then you can come up with a whole bunch of different scenarios. So the, the cool thing about this for people at home is, is that it is based off of the technique that you currently use. Right. Um, but then based off of those results, if you say, take, Hey, this is what we think it should be principally if you were using good technique, then you could use that as a reason to maybe double check your technique and see if there's ways to optimize one. Right. Um, you know, or just evaluate your testing protocol. Right. Did you, did you put a lot of intent? Did you do a bunch of like grindy reps, you know, or like some compensatory motions, right? So how let's, let's, all right, Brian, you're not allowed to vote, but uh, Dave and Abel, how good would you say Brian's training technique is? You know, he's been training since the dinosaur. So two out of 10. Two out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's uh, almost annoyingly good. Like it's a little bit too fancy good. for my liking, but it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I sent you guys, I sent, I sent you those images. Um, yeah. Right. Um, I can pull them up on, on the screen here, or you guys can look at them on your, your phone or whatever, um, whichever you guys think would be easiest, but essentially let's see here. You may want to put them up just so the audience yeah. can see it too. Yeah. Well, what I'll probably do is I will put them up in editing better. Let's see. Screen share. Screen share. All right. I do my full screen. Is that an option here? I now? think it'll ask you what page you want to share. Sure. All right. Can you see my full desktop here now? Or my yeah. Full? Yep. All right. Cool. Yep. All right. I made sure to close all the inappropriate things. <laughs> That's okay. always the joke. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So let me let me make that joke. <laughs> yeah. All right. As as I pull up pictures of half naked men. Um, yeah. Right. <laughs> So what I, what I kind of wanted you guys to look at here for context, because I thought this is, it, there's, it's interesting in two ways. One is it's interesting to look at um, how somebody with Brian's experience in technique, um, how much that can vary, but also to look at how his body actually adapts over time in this exercise. So on the left here is basically the very first rep. The middle is the fourth rep, which is halfway through a set. And then the eighth and final rep is which on the, the far side. And so what you'll see is, is that from beginning to end, he starts with more of a pull in type motion and slowly gradu graduates to a more sagittal motion. Like it becomes more pulled downy where the, you know, he's leaning to get the cable in front of him and closer to his body, the whole rep over the course of the set. Right. And you'll see that that rotation and all that stuff starts to come in early. So if we look at the top and the stretch position, you see that basically he starts really rotated, like the cable is almost 
directly at his side, right? And he's not like super leaned into it. But then as we get there, you know, it's a few degrees shift, but that's the top position. It's, if we get to where he's about close to 90 degrees of the shoulder extension position, you'll see that if you compare, he's getting into that rotation, like turning into where he would be facing towards the pulley earlier and earlier in the rep. Okay. This is textbook dog break Noli instructions, by the way, just so everybody yeah. knows, like this is exactly how he uh, teaches it in his book. Okay. I was going to say, because this is, so was this supposed to be a demonstration of something you approved of Kassam or, cause this looks very similar to the video you sent me of Doug. Well, yeah. which one, the first rep or the, or the last rep? Right. What right. I'm, right. So, so I think he's, I'm compensating as I'm getting more fatigued to use more lat, I think is, is what Kassam's saying. Right. Yeah. So what the two things that I want to show you for this is not to call it bad or good, but it's to show that, look, Brian started to try and do a more a deduction type motion right? A more lateral frontal plane type movement. And his body naturally compensated to wanting to do a more sagittal movement as fatigue came, right? Which suggests that this is a mechanically stronger position for him to be. And he didn't just do it at the end, like Doug rotates into that at the end, right? Mm -hmm. But Brian basically started doing it earlier and earlier and earlier in the rep to the point where like, you know, towards the end of the reps it's like he was just out here and then he was turning into it and doing instead of like you know doing a pull in and then rotating it was more of a rotate and then pull mm -hmm. down like there's a transition happening that was like starting from a very lateral based movement to a very sagittal front to back based movement right so the two things i wanted to look at is you know brian's got very good technique but look how much that technique changed just from rep one to rep eight, right? And generally, we will only see that we will only see that if the early exercise is not very mechanically favorable, because your body will be wanting to constantly move to a more mechanically favorable position, right? So you won't you won't compensate into something that's less advantageous, right? You'll always compensate towards something that's more advantageous. So, so two things to consider there is, is that well, it appears that pulling more sagely seems to be what Brian's body wants to do, right? And even with all of his skill and experience, he wasn't able to fight that by taking a set to an eight rep set to a zero RIR. I also have never done a pull-in before in my life yeah. until this set. So I don't have any practice. Yeah. Well, you managed <laughs> to do both versions that I did in one set. So I would say you're even more skilled than, than I am, right? Um, By the way, so. just can I ask a side question just uh, off of what you said, at, uh, like here is, mm -hmm. do you think that um, looking at what your body wants to do when you're failing a rep and how you want to compensate is a useful way of looking at how you could do that move exercise better? Because maybe that's why your body. Yeah. It can be. It can be. So if you're trying to do like very biased exercises, then yes, it can be because essentially the whole point of biasing is, is that you're trying to choose a position that makes that tissue the most mechanically advantageous tissue, the entire range of motion, right? So if you're continually wanting to going somewhere else, that means that there's something in your setup or your technique or your intent that could likely be tweaked or improved a bit. Now, when you're doing exercises that aren't very biased, you know, say like you're just doing a barbell bench press, you know, with you know, when it's just, it's just pec and triceps and whatever, um, 
and you have and it's more of a compound exercise then you have other variables in there because it's like well how much are the triceps you know versus the de the pecs or the delts and etc fatiguing and am i going to start adjusting my technique not necessarily because this muscle is fatiguing but because another muscle that's in the chain like if the triceps are fatiguing the pecs may have to adapt even if they were in a good position for the pecs because the mechanics of the exercise are changing if you're fatiguing somewhere else in the chain does that make sense so for exercises yeah. where it's pretty much you're, you're really targeting one muscle and you're not really limited by other ones, I would say yes. But for exercises where you have a lot of muscles in going on, then there's other variables because, you know, for instance, like a squat, right? You know, depending on whether it's your quads or your low back, your glutes, your adductor, whatever starts to fatigue first, your body will then mechanically adapt to be able yeah, to continue yeah. that squat. So depending on like if you're making a squat very quad bias, well, then that can be a sign that the quads are toast. But if your squat is really balanced and it's, you know, a power squat to use everything all at once, then that may not be as good of an indicator because you don't know for sure how all that fatigue is affecting the mechanics of the exercise. How would you determine yeah. like, I mean, you know, this isn't an isolation exercise that we're talking about here. So like to me, if I was doing a strict, let's say standing dumbbell curl, and it, I could make it easier by, by including more shoulder flexion. And yet to me, like that is a less effective bicep movement. You know, I, you know, we kind of joke about like the Steve Hall curl or, or like the Mike Isertel curl, but you know, they bring it up so high. It, it's like, it's becoming a front raise, but it's easier. And I mean, I have a video where I, I went to failure with a strict curl and then I got another five reps by allowing it to go up. And that I would say is at least as much of an isolation exercise as what we're looking at. Yeah, well, I would say, and you know, one thing you always have to count for is, are you just chasing a way to, like, to finagle the mechanics to make or the physics to lighten the load, right? So in that scenario, you're bringing the dumbbell over the elbow earlier by using the, the shoulder flexion, right? Um, so, but then I'd also say, like, in this case, right? So say if Brian was doing this, he might find that it would be easier if he elbow flexed more right? And brought the cable closer to a shoulder and whatnot. So when you start moving another joint, so I, maybe it's important to clarify that when I say like, when you're looking at your technique, it should be the way that you're moving that, that single joint. Like, so when I'm saying this is for biased exercise, I'd be like, okay, if Ryan's moving his body to like, to change the angle of the shoulder extension relative to the cable slightly, and it's not just making it easier, that's probably a positive adaptation. But if he's starting to incorporate movement at other joints, then I'd say, all right, now we're just either we're generating more momentum or somehow getting a physical advantage by implementing another joint. So it should be like this should look in the scope of what's happening at that single joint, not adding the action at, a, at, a, at the second joint, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What would you expect? Because um, we were talking about like other experiments that we could run. Um, and for most of them, I said like, well, I, I won't even bother because like it's, it's just too predictable what would happen to me. Like I, I would lose performance. But what would you expect with that 50% cutoff thing in mind um, with an overhead press and then some like behind the back lateral raise, for example? Um, for I wouldn't expect a, a ton of that, right? Because your overhead press is not going to be a lot of middle delts. It's going to be... Um, mostly anterior delt. What you are going to get more most overlap there, though, is going to be the the traps and what's stabilizing the scapula in both of those positions, right? 
So because your mm. upper rotation is needing to be stabilized in both mm-hmm. a lateral raise and an over. So what you what so sometimes these things are good if you're trying to figure out like exercise order or what you can put in the same workout and stuff like that. Because if like if you know if if say you're gonna have one of those exercises early in the workout and another exercise later in the workout, what might be interesting to know is how much would possibly the fatigue in your upper traps and your scapular stabilizers carry over to taking away from the other exercise, right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. For, for one person, it might be like, look, my traps are jacked and strong and I can support that really well. So I can do both of these exercises in the same workout and it doesn't really negatively impact my performance um, because the more distal muscles are by far the limiter. And for another person, it might be like, well, because of the way they've been training or the way they're built, is that the limiter, like they might get more of the scapular muscle fatigue and therefore having both of those in the same workout versus spreading them out, you know, throughout the week or at least further apart in the workout would be a better decision for them. Yeah. Um, uh, do you, Kasim, or one of you other guys want to address some important points? Um, or like, are we at this point um, are we ready to lead like the ask- experiment? Yeah. I yeah, like, I mean- so that's why I'm asking I had a kind of like relate and, and obviously based on the theme of this podcast, you know, I think there's going to be a combination of things that we are actually curious about and then maybe somewhat like what audience members might also be thinking, especially if they're, they're new to some of the stuff. So, um, but one I would think is, you know, you said, well, how good is Brian's form? And it's, it's obviously good. Uh, but I hate to be like the, uh, like, does it really matter kind of guy, but that's frequently <laughs> who I am. And, and I would say, you know, look at somebody's technique, like branch Warren, right? Like obviously IFBB pro, like high, high level bodybuilder. Now from an injury standpoint, maybe not recommended. Same thing could be said about Ronnie Coleman, right? If, if we're talking about longevity, but from a strictly muscle growth standpoint, do you think that if, you know, this was the early two thousands, you could take your techniques and improve the lats of Ronnie Coleman and branch Warren? Um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to say those guys is for sure. Ronnie probably really close to just the potential that he could have as a human, right? Like, I don't think that with all of the variables that you have going into an athlete like that, and this is the thing, like genetics and gear can do a lot. Like, so if you, if you think about it, like a human has a certain amount of potential for performance in anything. Right. And could they potentially reach that? hitting different buttons. And once they hit it, it doesn't matter if there's other buttons that haven't been completely optimized, that they're just, they're just there. Now what I say, could we have gotten Ronnie's physique better, faster, probably better, healthier, probably like, like for sure with like, you know, if, if you, you know, for sure, both of those guys could have had fewer injuries in their career with some better training decisions, probably. Right. Um, you know, and then the and then the other thing is is when you're looking at like when you're looking at the you know the freakiest athletes in the sport is it's really about like getting them to that level with the highest quality of life possible. That means the least amount of time you know being sore and beat up and joint pain, fewer injuries, et cetera, stuff like that. Um, but I just don't think that it would be fair to say, hey, if he did this uh, this other lat exercise that he had more potential to really grow those things. You, you know, I'd say I I could hope and pray, but honestly, I think that, you know, once somebody is, you know, at 99.999% of the limit that they could, 
you know, have until like we make some actual incredible Hulk serum or something like that. I don't think it's fair to say that like, look, any new exercise or novelty likely wasn't going to make him better than what he achieved in that career. Right. You know, until we have somebody that makes Ronnie Coleman look like an amateur, we're just going to, I'm just going to say like, yeah, that's, that's, that's the peak of human bodybuilding right there. Like, I don't know that it gets, (laughs) that it gets bigger and leaner, you know, than that. I mean, have we seen that since Ronnie's era, you know, arguably no. Right. And guys have better equipment and, you know, better access to all sorts of things now. Right. I mean, it's not to take away, like people, people are still achieving, you know, outstanding things, but I think it's, it's hard to say that you could make somebody absolutely better when it's pretty clear that they're really, really close to what their human potential is. Right. But I would definitely say that you could have gotten there faster, healthier, Right. And probably with a, you know, just enjoying the process and having a higher quality of life. 